What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Passing Downs Podcast. I'm your host, Rahul, and I'm here with PD. PD, say what's up. What's up? And today we're back with another one of our weekly recap episodes. Uh, We're going to start off with our normal three up, three down from the previous week of football. Talk about three good quarterbacks and then three guys who didn't play so well. And then we'll get into some previews of the next week uh, and continue like that. Uh, but before we get started, real quick, please uh, follow us on Twitter at PD34 underscore for him and at Real Rahul Tapati too. Uh, we post tweets here and there talking about the same sort of things we're talking about here. Uh, and with that being said, let's jump right into it. PD, you get started with your first quarterback. Yeah, so first quarterback for me is a guy who's put forth one of the best performances of the year. And it came for, came in a loss, but that shouldn't deter us from the fact from recognizing this as one of the most impressive performances of the year, especially from a volume standpoint. Um, and that's Josh Allen against the Eagles. Allen, just from the basic stats, over 400 yards of offense, um, with four touchdowns, um, does have the one interception, which we'll get to. But, um, yeah, incredible game where he just backpacked the Bills offense and gave them a chance to win um, throughout the game. Um Many, many times it was apparent that the Eagles were were going to have a chance to really come back uh, on the Bills. Um, and Allen like, continued to keep the Bills in the game before finally the Eagles just showed that they were the better team. So I'll start off with the first drive. Um, nothing too much here, just a short check down to James Cook. Um, and they end up punting. Second drive, more of the same. A couple of check downs to Kincaid and James Cook plus a sneak on fourth and one to pick up a first down. Um, the next drive, though, is where it really starts to get going. So Allen throws one out to Latavius Murray in the flat um, and then throws one to Stephon Diggs for a 12-yard gain. He then hits Diggs again for an eight-yard gain. Um, and then after a few incompletions, he scrambles for uh, 11 yards on a third and 10 to pick up a first down um, and then has a check down um, in field goal range, and the Bills end up taking the field goal on that drive. Uh, on the next drive, uh, the Bills score their first touchdown where uh, Josh Allen uh, hits James Cook for a check down for four yards, um, and then again to James Cook for seven yards. Um, and then he hits Gabe Davis on his first big throw of the day, um, a great throw uh, to Gabe Davis outside the numbers. Uh, and then he scrambles up the middle for a nine-yard touchdown. So first rushing touchdown of the day for him on that drive. Um, next drive, not too much there. Um, just a couple of uh, short passes. Um, there is a great pass to Khalil Shakir for a 31-yard gain, though, um, and the drive kind of kind of ends up stalling out after a couple of incompletions, which weren't really Allen's fault. Um, the one on third and eight to uh, Trent Sherfield looked like a miscommunication. Um, yeah, not really any missed throw there. Um, the next drive, uh, Allen again leading the Bills into field goal range. Um, starts off with an incompletion, then a short completion to Stephon Diggs. Um, throws another great pass to Stephon Diggs for a 22-yard gain. Um, and then hits Gabe Davis again for a 25-yard gain uh, after a short pass to Dalton Kincaid. Um, the drive ends up stalling out in the red zone because of um, a bizarre intentional grounding penalty where uh, not only was it not intentional grounding, but it also probably should have been a horse collar. Um, and that kind of pushes the Bills out of uh, a chance to score a touchdown there. Um, the next drive... Uh, which was a touchdown drive for the Bills. Um, Allen makes a huge scramble for a 19-yard gain. Um, and then he hits uh, Dalton Kincaid on a short pass for a 14-yard gain and then hits uh, Stephon Diggs on a really impressive pass for uh, the touchdown. 
Um, the next drive, uh, Allen again leading the Bills into field goal range. Um, hits Khalil Shakir for a short gain, um, and then again for a 10-yard gain. Um, and by that time, or actually, first there was an impressive pass to Gabe Davis for a 23-yard gain. Um, and then those couple of short passes pushes the Bills field goal range, but they can't end up capitalizing. Um, next drive, another scoring drive for the Bills. Um, Allen with a, a short run for a seven-yard gain, um, and then hits James Cook for a 29-yard gain, not too impressive on the pass, more of a James Cook play on that one. Um, and then he has uh, a big scramble for a 16-yard touchdown where he just ended up breaking multiple tackles. A really, really impressive play there. Uh, the next drive, uh, Allen, he throws his interception. Um, this one, definitely on Allen, doesn't really see James Bradbury. Um, and Bradbury is able to come up and, and make the play for the pick. Uh, next drive, again, ends up stalling out a little bit. He hits Gabe Davis for uh, an 18-yard gain on a pretty impressive pass um, and then throws an incompletion, uh, Stephon Diggs. Uh, and then takes a sack that wasn't really as well. Third and 14, kind of got to make something happen. Uh, next drive, a touchdown drive, really impressive drive from Allen. He hits uh, Latavius Murray for a short gain. Uh, and then the really impressive pass here was a one to Diggs for a 14-yard gain. Um, and then hits Gabe Davis for a seven-yard touchdown. Um, the Bills end up kneeling the next drive, which I really think was um, a, a bad decision for them. 20 seconds, I think it's worth giving Josh Allen a chance to get into field goal range. Um, in, in the overtime drive, um, Allen hits Gabe Davis for a 13-yard gain um, and then has a very impressive scramble on third and nine for a 15-yard gain. Um, he hits James Cook for uh, a short check down for four yards. Um, and then after roughing the passer penalty, um, he scrambles uh, for a four-yard gain. And then on third and six uh, from or, or deep into Philly's uh, territory, um, he has a miscommunication with, with Gabe Davis where Davis is running a corner. Allen's kind of throwing what looks like a seam. Not really the greatest throw, even if it was a seam, but clearly miscommunication there where uh, Allen's trying to get the ball out of his hands to beat the blitz, and Gabe Davis kind of uh, isn't on the same page with him. Um, and that's how the game ends. Um, Bills don't get another chance. Um, that miscommunication ends up costing them, and it takes away from what was an incredible day for Allen. Allen was... Um, on the money on his downfield throws for almost the entire game. The one turnover they played resulting in the interception, but he did so, so much more to make up for it. Um, was under a lot of pressure in this game. Some of it was self-induced, but only ending up taking seven, or only ended up taking one sack. Um, a pretty strong demonstration of his ability to kind of control um, the line of scrimmage with his strength and, and playmaking ability. And um, yeah, one of the more impressive games of the year from a volume standpoint. Yeah, absolutely incredible game from Allen, and I think it's a bit of a shame that it felt like the Bills were almost robbed of a win there. <clears throat> Definitely a lot of questionable calls towards the end of that game, but the biggest reason they were in this game and made this such a such a close matchup was because of Josh Allen's amazing performance. And I would agree, they, they did kind of bait him into that interception throw. It looked like Bradbury was dropping back in coverage, and then he jumps forward to the flat and kind of just undercuts that pass uh, intended for Diggs. So not the best throw from Allen there, like you mentioned. He didn't. He just simply didn't see him. But outside of that, he was pretty much lights out the rest of the game. And I like that you mentioned at the end uh, how he dealt with the pressure. I also felt like one of the biggest X factors was going to be how Allen deals with, obviously, the Eagles having a a very good pass rush, one of the best in the league. And I think Allen in this game showed why he's so good at that. He's just 
so good at being able to just use his frame and it seems like effortly effortlessly just be able to stay stay strong in the pocket deliver his passes it doesn't matter who is around him he's still going to do his thing they don't affect kind of his footwork or his motion in any way definitely great performance from him and i'd say one of the only performances to probably top him and maybe i'd say the best performance of the week even though there were a lot of good performances so might not have been but one of the better ones this week on Thanksgiving came from Dak Prescott. And we talked about Dak Prescott in our Pro Bowl episode. He's been on an absolute heater recently. And since then, he's absolutely continued it. And another one here against the Commanders. You can even see it in his base stats. He was 22 for 32, 331 yards, four touchdowns, no picks, no fumbles, no sacks. Just an absolutely incredible lights out game. And it came in bunches with all kinds of explosive plays. We saw deep passes go even to guys like Kevontae Turpin, Jake Ferguson, uh, Tolbert, and obviously him and his guys and Brandon Cooks and C.D. Lamb were absolutely on point all day long. And the, the thing I love the most about Dak's performance here is in recent memory, we've seen him have dominant performances going to C.D. Lamb a lot. And C.D. Lamb, obviously, an incredible receiver showing that he's a number one guy right now. But in this game, you just saw Dak take what the defense gives him and just absolutely dice this defense up with any receiver. Like, like I said, he went to all of his guys. One of my favorite throws of the day was actually the, the one that kind of ended this game. Or at, this, at that point, it was kind of uh, ended already and the uh, Cowboys were kind of pouring it on. But that 34-yard touchdown pass to Kevontae Turpin to put them up 35 points, that was an absolute dime of a throw. The beautiful deep pass, uh, one of the better ones I saw out of him uh, that day. And it, it, one thing, and it's not really to take away from Dak's performance, I do think it was kind of uh, elevated by how bad this commander's defense did play in this game. You weren't really necessarily seeing seeing him make a lot of tie window throws or anything of that manner to a to a large extent and that's like I said nothing to take away from Dak's performance but it, it you do have to take the fact that the defense played pretty terribly he had guys running wide open all day long but regardless still an incredible performance his accuracy was uh amazing and I feel like somehow some way at this stage in his career he has elevated his anticipation to an even higher extent you see him he's just able to see things right now that I didn't think he was or, or, or in the last few years at least uh he's definitely taken his game to the next step or maybe it is the fact that he's finally healthy we know Dak Prescott is someone who's dealt with a lot of injuries especially last year it completely derailed his season and this Dak Prescott looks like he's playing aggressive like I said he's going all day long deep uh, he's extremely accurate, and he looks like he's playing his best football right now. And another great game for him. Yeah, he was absolutely lights out. I thought it was one of the most efficient and clean games of the year. Um, just throw after throw down the field, it, it didn't matter, like, where he was throwing. Uh -huh. Open windows, tight windows, it, it was just an absolute slaughter. Um, and Dak right now, uh, playing at clear MVP level, he has been absolutely on fire to the point where – in any given week for the past, like, what, five, six weeks, could say he's a contender for one of the best performances of the week. And this week, again, um, 
one of the best games of the week. All right. Uh, let's go to another pocket passer, and that's C.J. Stroud. And this game between the Jags and the Texans, wow. Incredible, incredible game. Yeah, I loved watching every second of this. Watch this one live. Um, and this was a really, like, out-of-body experience for C.J. Stroud. He was under pressure a ton in this game. And some of that was self-induced with him uh, bailing from the pocket early a little bit. Um, I charted nine early pocket bills in this one, which is a monstrous amount for a single game. Um, and 26 dropbacks under pressure. So he's kind of causing uh, quite a bit of the pressure that uh, he has in this game. But not since the Ravens game have I seen him uh, under this volume of pressure. And the percentage of plays that he was under pressure is quite a lot higher than the Ravens game. So, um, yeah, let's let's just get into it. So the first drive starts off with a short pass to Tank Dell. Um, that, that Tank Dell takes for a 16-yard gain. Um, and then one to Andrew Beck in a scramble on third and nine, which doesn't uh, end up getting a first down, um, and they end up punting on that drive. The next drive, again, offense stalls out again. Um, a short pass to um, Tank Dell again for a nine-yard gain after a holding call. Um, and then a couple of incompletions where uh, Stroud isn't able to hook up with Tank Dell. Um, next drive, again, they stall out. Stroud has a scramble on a second and seven for a six-yard gain. Um, and then he takes a sack uh, on a second and eight, which this one I didn't think was on him, but um, we will get to some more passes or some more plays. Um, later on in the game. Um, the next play was something crazy. So Stroud had a crazy 62-yard completion to Tank Dell, but it ended up getting called back uh, because of an illegal shift where Nico Collins and Tank Dell weren't um, kind of set in the way that they were supposed to be. Um, Stroud hits Nico Collins on a screen for a 14-yard gain on third and 20, um, but that ends up leading to a punt. Uh, next drive, Houston finally gets on the board. Uh, Stroud hits uh, – Robert Woods on impressive intermediate pass um, and then scrambles for an eight-yard gain. Um, and then he hits a Devin Singletary on a short pass for a 33-yard gain. Um, and then he hits Tank Dell for a seven-yard touchdown. So um, a few impressive plays on that drive, but nothing too crazy. Um, the next drive, um, Stroud hits Devin Singletary on a short pass for a 10-yard gain and then a negative one-yard uh, loss. The next play on second and 11, Stroud hits Tank Dell for a 17-yard gain on a pretty impressive pass. Um, and then hits Dalton Schultz for a two-yard gain. Uh, after a couple, after a scramble for an 11-yard gain, he hits Tank Dell for just one yard. Um, and then on third and nine, um, he hits Tank Dell along the sideline. But kind of, I, I think this one was a completion, if I'm being honest. But the refs end up ruling this one incomplete because they say that Tank Dell doesn't have control of the ball before he goes out of bounds. Um, and then they end up missing the field goal. Um, in the second half, this is where I think get to start getting a little crazy because the Jags' pressure just felt like they were getting pressure almost every snap. So um, the next drive, um, Stroud hits Devin Singletary for a short gain and then Nico Collins for a short three-yard gain. Um, and then he hits Nico Collins again, and Collins runs after catch for a long 22-yard gain. Um, Devin Singletary uh, then gets the Texans all the way down near the one. Um, and then Stroud, after a couple of unsuccessful runs, he takes it on a – uh, rollout play, uh, scrambles for the touchdown. Uh, next drive also stalls out again, but this time it's because uh, Stroud hits. So first, Stroud hits uh, Nico Collins on an impressive pass for a 24-yard gain, um, and then he hits, uh, or and then he gets, uh, or then he misses a pass to um, John Mechie, um, and then the next play takes his first sack that I thought he was at fault for. On uh, a third and six, kind of tries to scramble left and um, isn't able to beat Josh Allen. Um, not too mad about that play, third and six, you kind of have to make a play, but um, sack does fall on him. 
the next drive, uh, Texans end up stalling out and um, turning it over on downs. Um, Stroud hits uh, John Mechie for a short six-yard gain um, and then throws back-to-back incomplete passes on deep ones uh, to Nico Collins. And then on fourth and one, um, they end up calling a pass play where Stroud pushes it deep down the field to Dalton Schultz. Um, doesn't end up being a completion because uh, he overthrows him. Uh, next drive, a touchdown drive for the Texans. Uh, Stroud hits Xavier Hutchinson for a big 34-yard gain um, and then hits Damian Pierce and then Devin Singletary for a uh, short four-yard gain and then no gain. Um, and then Stroud hits uh, Nico Collins for a 17-yard touchdown. Uh, great play there from Collins and Stroud. Um, and then on the Texans' final drive of the game, this is where the, the uh, pressure just seemed to get to Stroud on every single play. Um, Stroud has a 16-yard scramble um, for uh, to put the Texans at the 32-yard line. Um, and then has an incompletion where he could have hit Bourbon Jordan, um, but kind of missed the throw. Um, he hits Devin Singletary for a six-yard gain, um, and then Bourbon Jordan for a nine-yard gain. And then um, this is the one I was kind of hinting at. So at, on a first and 10, they're at the 47-yard line. Stroud takes a 15-yard sack um, on what's a called screen pass. Um, and I think he definitely could have avoided that. He just got him dirted at that point. Um, Stroud comes back with a very impressive pass, though, to Nico Collins for a 17-yard gain. Um, and then hits Robert Woods for 14-yard gain um, on third and eight. So um, able to kind of make up for it a little bit. The next play, Stroud takes a nine-yard sack um, on first and 10, which wasn't entirely on him. There seems to be a protection breakdown, but um, another sack there for Texas offense. Uh, and then Nico Collins gets a seven-yard gain, and then Stroud throws an incompletion. Um, Texans end up attempting a 58-yard field goal on fourth and 12, where I think they probably could have gone for it might have been successful, but um, ended up kicking the field goal and that's the end of the game. So Stroud, no turnover with the plays, but like I mentioned, a couple of sacks that fall on his shoulders. Of course, the Texans offense with Stroud's ability to anticipate, uh, manipulate defenders with his eyes and throw catchable passes. Um, and the Texans scheming, obviously, enabling a lot of that as well. They're never going to be at a shortage of generating positive and explosive plays. Um, but we got a game where the Texans kind of uh, were forced to play in kind of a scramble drill mode. And um, Stroud definitely looked different from what he normally looks like. Um, but I, I was impressed by the fact that he was able to very much keep his head above water. And I thought he played a good game overall, despite being forced into a style that he's not really uh, maximized in. So um, very, very impressed by Stroud in this one. Yeah, I was also incredibly impressed by Stroud. And what a turnaround from him in this aspect of his game. One of the biggest things that we were concerned about Stroud coming out of Ohio State was, and I've mentioned this before, uh, how he's going to deal with pressure because he had multiple games in college where pressure just completely ruined what the best parts of his game, which is his accuracy, his anticipation. They would just get him out of it. And once he was kind of out of that headspace, he would kind of spiral. And I did wonder that in games like this, like the where the Jaguars were sending a lot of pressure and consistently putting him under duress, how he's going to respond. And like you said, we saw a completely different version of C.J. Stroud. It was a lot more uh, backyard football rather than him kind of sitting in the pocket and picking apart defenses like we've seen him do throughout this year. And he was still incredibly successful. And I just love the way the Texans offense as a whole adapted to this style of play. We saw Nico Collins and Tank Dell kind of 
So even though they've been doing this throughout the year, even more so in this game, we saw them line up in all kinds of places. They're lining up at the outside and the slot and running all sorts of different route combinations, just getting them open because you know C.J. Stroud will be able to deliver them the ball anywhere. It, it seems like at this point we can say that he can make any throw on the football field. And they've done a great job of getting those guys open in space and just letting C.J. Stroud uh, do what he does best. And that's why I was incredibly impressed from this one. Also, we saw a little bit of C.J. Stroud getting out of the pocket and even running. You talked about a couple of plays like that. That's not something we've seen from C.J. Stroud a lot. And if that's something he can also dive into, if if need be, uh, it, he's gonna be. It's gonna be really good for him. And the reason this game was so good as a whole, uh, the flip side of things. In Trevor Lawrence, he was also absolutely incredible in this one. I'd say maybe even better in this. And you can see it from his box score as well. He's 23 for 38, 364 yards. Well, one touchdown, one pick, no sacks, and no fumbles. A very, very good game from him. And I'll jump right into that pick because that's something that I didn't really think was his fault. It seems like the Texans almost got away with a little bit of a PI or a hold. It was like a slant uh to Evan Ingram and it seems like the DB underneath kind of grabs his hip and turns him doesn't allow Ingram to get there all the way and the interception just goes straight to the DB behind him for a pick uh I do think they the Texans were a little lucky to get away from uh, away with that and to me that wasn't a uh really taking away from Lawrence's performance much and the rest of his game he was absolutely incredible some of my favorite throws from this game, uh, one of which didn't even end up counting, unfortunately, because Calvin Ridley drops it. But on a third and 15 in Texans territory, we see Lawrence just draw, uh, drop a dime uh, on a streak to Ridley. And maybe you could uh, say it was a little high, but Ridley does get his hands on the ball. And I absolutely think he should have come down with that. Uh, and I feel like we say this quite often at this point in Lawrence's games where Ridley has one miscue or a big drop like this and uh a lot of lawrence's games statistically would look different if uh that didn't happen seeing that play really annoyed me because that was one of the better throws of the day that kind of goes to waste another one of my favorite throws from this day was uh just before halftime like 10 seconds to go we see lawrence just drop a little uh drop the ball uh, roughly 20 yards downfield to Christian Kirk. Uh, it was like a, a crosser type of route. And I just love the concept because normally in that sort of situation with the Texans defense absolutely expecting the Jaguars to try to get downfield to get into field goal range at least. And Kirk actually is able to run this all the way to the Texans one. But they knew they were trying to get downfield, but the uh, Jaguars still were able to cook up a play where they had multiple receivers kind of crossing across each other. And you just see Christian Kirk get open uh, going across the field. And Lawrence leads him upfield perfectly, puts him in the right position to where he can grab that and run upfield for uh, what he needed to do. Almost results in a touchdown. Amazing throw from Lawrence. And even though Ridley misses that, the, missed that earlier catch, he does make up for it a little bit. In another one of Lawrence's uh, better throws of the day in the second half, uh, you saw Ridley very similar to that Kirk route actually kind of go across the field from the left side to the right. 
and Lawrence just drops it right in right in the bread basket as he's going upfield and once again leads him upfield so that he can uh, continue and that ended up being like a 45 yard gain because of Lawrence and I feel like that's something I've seen a lot out of Lawrence recently you see guys uh, a lot of the Jacksonville's route combos it's a lot of east and west action and a lot of the time maybe you don't get as many yards out of those types of plays because it's tough for a receiver to go horizontal then kind of catch the ball and turn up field but recently we're seeing Lawrence kind of angle the ball diagonally to where the receiver can start turning upfield as they're catching the ball. And I feel like that's led to a lot more yak yards. We're seeing multiple explosive plays happen as a result of it. And that's something guys like Christian Kirk, Evan Ingram, uh, even like a guy like ETN, even though he's not running as many deeper routes, that stuff they're really good at in the open field. And I love how Lawrence has kind of maximize that and even though the Texans weren't necessarily getting a lot of pressure on Lawrence uh, I loved how he was very stout and good in the pocket as well Uh, didn't really seem like they ever forced him out of place Uh, he was also very accurate maybe not one of his most accurate days but I would say that's more because they were going kind of back and forth both the offenses were in just exchanging big play after big play and Lawrence was just really aggressive and when that happens when you are pushing the ball downfield a lot the accuracy will naturally drop a little bit but in general I thought Lawrence played a lights out game one of his best games of the season and with Stroud also playing as well as he did this made for like PD started off with an incredible matchup definitely an incredible matchup overall and um, I, I really like the point that you made about the, the ball placement. It's something interesting that I've been um, thinking about when I watch film. But the guys who have incredibly elite arm talent like Trevor Lawrence, um, they have the tendency to be able to just put the – like in, in the sense of the uh, phrase that people like use it, put the ball wherever they want. That kind of shows up in some of those plays where um, they just throw a perfectly like to the, to the dot type of pass that leads to um, really high level yards at the catch. Um, and you can kind of see that with guys who have pristine mechanics, like uh, CJ Stroud is a good example. Um, Joe Burrow is another example. Um, they can they can do it that way. But um, when you have that level of arm talent, sometimes when the all the, all the parts come together perfectly, um, it leads to these types of like incredibly perfect passes that lead to explosive games with the yards after catch. Um, it's kind of an interesting subset of, of ball placement. Um, but let's move on to a quarterback who is bouncing back. And wow, uh, I am excited to talk about this because Matt Canada is finally gone. Um, and the Steelers offense was semi-watchable this week. Um, <laughs> and let's talk about Kenny Pickett. Um, Kenny Pickett was fantastic in this game. Um, it's the first time I can say that in a very, very long time. Um, starts off this game with a beautiful throw down the seam to uh, Pat Frymouth, just puts it right on the money. Um, not only is it a pass down the middle, it's passed down the field as well. Um, this is something that the Steelers offense was not participating in uh, for weeks and weeks. Um, and the first game without Matt Canada, they start doing it a little bit. Um, next pass for Kenny Pickett goes for a five-yard loss to uh, Deontay Johnson, kind of runs backwards after catching it. Um, next play, um, a 10-yard gain on a short pass to Connor Hayward. Um, and then a five and three yard game on short passes to George Pickens and Jalen Warren. Uh, Pickett then takes a sack for an eight yard loss. 
um, and then completes a beautiful pass for uh, a 30 yard completion again to Farmuth down the seam. Um, so two seam passes in, in the first quarter for Kenny Pickett. Um, and then he finishes off the drive with a really nice tight window throw to Deontay Johnson. He's a little bit late on this pass, um, but I think it was definitely one that Deontay Johnson should have caught and it would have resulted in a touchdown. Um, the next play for Kenny Pickett, he scrambles for a five-yard gain. Um, and then his first pass of the second quarter throws an absolute dot uh, to Deontay Johnson on a fade route, just drops it in the bucket down the sideline for Deontay Johnson. Um, next play, his receiver falls down, which leads to an incompletion. Um, and then he has a pass where he's hit while throwing in. Can't, get the, can't really get the pass off. The next play for a picket, a uh, 10-yard gain off a short pass to tight end Washington. Um, and then has a miscommunication with Deontay Johnson. Uh, next play, he has a short eight-yard completion um, on a pass to Pat Frymuth, and then a five-yard loss on a uh, screen pass to Jalen Warren. Um, after a throwaway and a string of short passes that go for four 11 yards, and then a 16-yard pass on an intermediate pass to uh, Pat Frymuth, he has a scramble for three yards, um, and then ends up having a hit while throwing pass um, on a second and 17, and that ends the second quarter for the Steelers. Um, in the third quarter, he has a short pass that goes for 14 yards and then misses a pass um, to George Pickens where he's wide open and just completely airmails him. Um, next pass uh, goes for a five-yard gain on a short pass and then a nine-yard gain on another short pass, uh, and then a 10-yard gain on an intermediate pass to, to George Pickens. Um, next play is a sack for Pickett where he kind of, this one was on him, um, kind of moving to his left, doesn't end up, uh, throwing the ball away when I thought he could have. Um, and then he has an intermediate completion to Pat Frymuth um, as his last play of the third quarter. Um, in the fourth quarter, uh, the start of the next drive, um, he has a one-yard completion on a short pass and then an incompletion to uh, George Pickens. Um, next pass, an intermediate pass to Deontay Johnson for a 12-yard gain. Um, and then the next play, uh, a short pass to Pat Frymuth for a seven-yard gain. Um, and for his final explosive play of the day, Hits George Pickens on uh, slot fade, absolute dime of a throw on a third and eight. A critical play that puts the Steelers in field goal range. Um, and then he has an incompletion and a couple of short completions to finish out the game. So, um, like I mentioned, multiple really, really well thrown passes. Um, the drop touchdown by Deontay Johnson, multiple seam passes to Pat Firemuth, um, and then a couple of goal balls that were beautifully thrown. Um, yeah, I mean, if the Steelers kind of tap into their uh, desire to take shots down the field off those one-on-one -on -one actions, like the seam passes and um, the goal balls, like that's a perfectly fair way to at least attempt to attack down the field. Um, they don't have the true speed and agility and explosiveness at receiver to consistently separate down the field on more complicated stuff, like post corners and what have it, what you whatever you have. Um, but I think that just taking your one-on-one -on -one opportunities when they present themselves instead of just throwing hitches and screens and hitches and screens every other play. It's, it's, it's so much more watchable of an offense and add that with Pickett's freedom to kind of create. And you have a guy who very much looked like a pro bowler in, in that game against uh, the Bengals. So I was very, very impressed with Pickett and a play like this down the stretch. And he's definitely going to be the starter next year. Yeah, massive, massive game for not only Kenny Pickett, but like you said, the Steelers' offense. And I know there's plenty of jokes about it already, but 
they actually might have to investigate Matt Canada for what he did to this offense. It was actually ridiculous watching that. And then seeing this 400 plus yards of offense in this game for the Steelers, which I believe is something they didn't even do once with Matt Canada. It's actually ridiculous to see. And I like that you said semi-watchable because despite them having 400 plus yards of offense, this offense still can convert in the red zone and only came away with 16 points which is still a little ridiculous, but still a massive, massive upgrade from what we saw with Matt Canada and a complete different style of play, like you said. Kenny Pickett finally was getting his best skills utilized, and I think people had kind of written off Kenny Pickett, me included to a certain extent, because what we had seen from Kenny Pickett up till this point was just straight up bad quarterbacking, to be honest. And obviously, it is on the offensive coordinator or whoever is calling plays to get the best out of quarterbacks. We saw in previous years and even in college that Kenny Pickett's not just trash. Like, he has good qualities. And it is on the offensive coordinator to bring it out of them. And that's what we saw in this one. Another thing that I guess kind of we didn't see a lot because of injury, but I also do want to blame a little of Matt Canada for is them not really utilizing Fryermuth as much as I expected them coming into the season. Because Pickett and Fryermuth have an absolutely amazing connection. I thought that would be one of the better young quarterback tight end duos for a while. And obviously Fryermuth's been dealing with a lot of injury this year, but even when he has played, I feel like that's something they just never went to. They're trying to force this whole connection with Pickens and uh, uh, even Deontay Johnson has been out a lot and him coming back has been huge for this offense. But for whatever reason, I just, I don't know why they weren't using what Kenny Pickett is best at, which like you mentioned is creating it's every now and then going for those goal balls as well. He's great at passing it down the sidelines to guys like Pickens. We saw it last year all the time. Uh, yeah, I've no clue why they weren't doing that, but I am very glad things have changed. Uh, I'm still not completely sold on the Steelers offense because I do think this Bengals team, I think they've kind of given up on the season this point with the Burrow injury. That defense was playing very uh, uninspired, so to say. And even though you had Jake Browning on the other side of the field, uh, they really weren't able to go and get this game despite the Steelers offense, even though they were kind of playing at a, a great rate they still weren't able to convert. And you did see still some of the problems that have plagued them throughout the year. So I do want to see the Steelers offense moving forward, but this was absolutely a massive step. And talking about another young quarterback who's taken massive steps recently, and we kind of skipped over him to talk about that Trevor Lawrence, CJ Stroud game. But going back to Thanksgiving, once again, another quarterback was lights out was Jordan Love. Uh, he played amazing in this one too. Uh, and you see it from the box score, 22 for 32, 268 yards, three touchdowns, uh, no picks, no sacks. And you kind of see him do it literally right out the gate. I believe it was maybe the first player, one of the first plays of the game. The Packers come out and take a deep shot to Christian Watson. Watson's able to just burn his defenders on what seemed to be like a post type of route. 
And I will say not one of the best throws of Jordan Love's day. He definitely underthrows it slightly. And I do think he has the arm talent to make that throw, even though it's an incredibly difficult throw going that far downfield. It takes a lot of arm talent. But as we'll see with some of the other throws I'll talk about, Jordan Love absolutely does have that arm talent. Uh, A little underthrown. The DB underneath is almost able to come back and get that play. But like I said, very deep throw, difficult to make. A lot of quarterbacks don't even make that throw. So uh, definitely a big way to start. And one of my favorite throws of the day actually came on that same drive, that first drive. It was the touchdown pass. And watching this pass on the film, I I was looking at it. And if you see this pass, I think 99% of the uh, time, coaches will tell you not to make that throw because the window on that slant he threw was non-existent I even paused it to see where what he was looking at and there's three lines there you for whatever reason there's another Packers receiver going underneath kind of poor scheme right there or play design uh brought another lines defender there and window just looks non-existent but Love is just able to laser it in and just put it right on the money. And uh, his receiver, I believe it was Jaden Reed, is able to fall into the end zone off of that. Just an incredible throw and kind of showing Jordan Love's arm talent. Uh, Another play in that same quarter, kind of showing his arm talent. It was a second and seven pass. And you see Jordan Love shuffle around in the pocket and throw a sidearm pass to I forget who it was, but roughly 15, 20 yards downfield. And that pass almost reminded me of like a Jalen Hurts type of throw where he's able to set his feet and just laser in a sidearm pass because it's kind of necessary there. He has defenders in front of his face a little bit and he has to fit it in in the right window. It kind of shows his arm flexibility, shows even when he's kind of off his platform and throwing a little bit of a weird motion kind of pass. He's still able to deliver the ball with a lot of velocity, kind of showing how Jordan Love's game has developed. Because obviously early on, we knew he had the arm talent, but I never really saw him confident enough to kind of utilize all these different types of throws and whatnot. Uh, Another pass that I really liked out of him, this came in the second half. It was a first and 15 play. And the pocket kind of breaks down. You see lines, uh, D lineman uh, come free towards the end of that play. And he has to run right. And he does what you're not supposed to, which is throw across the body over to the left side of the field. But once again, when you have the arm talent of someone like Jordan Love, he's able to make that play kind of with ease, uh, hits hits that pass. And once again, kind of going to show that, Jordan, we've known Jordan Love has this kind of arm talent. He's maybe able to make those throws, but to me, it didn't seem like he was confident enough to make a lot of those passes and actually go for it earlier. And I think that hindered him. And now we're seeing a much more confident Jordan Love who can do that. And to cap off this game, uh, we see another amazing pass on kind of a fade type of route to Christian Watson for a touchdown. Finally seeing some good play out of Christian Watson in general in that game but just delivers that ball beautifully. Even though Love obviously has that arm, he's able to make touch passes like that, just drops it right in the bucket for Christian Watson uh, downfield for another big play. So amazing game from Jordan Love against the Lions defense, who as of late has been turning up for for sure. Uh, The the Packers offensive line played an uncharacteristically good game to give him 
a lot of pressure or a lot less pressure than I expected the that would come from this Lions defensive line. Uh, and Jordan Love took advantage and delivered great passes all day. Yeah, I think that um, on that pass to um, to Jaden Reed, uh, Christian Watson is like 100% running the wrong route. Like, um, I think that's very much just triple slant and um, Christian Watson just runs an, a quick out route, which is kind of bizarre. Um, but yeah, Arn Talent, when it's um, maximized, it can kind of overcome some of those things. And uh, yeah, Jordan Love has a ton of Arn Talent and we mentioned him in the Pro Bowl episode, but down the stretch, he could definitely work himself into that type of conversation. He has been playing fantastic. Um, and he's looked like a pro bowler, I would say, for these last four weeks. So um, let's see if we can keep it rolling this week in, in a tough matchup against Kansas City. Um, but, yeah, speaking of that Packers-Lions Thanksgiving matchup, let's talk about the other side. Uh, start off with the bad quarterbacks. Um, and, yeah, it's going to be Jared Goff. And Jared Goff was really smelly in this game. Um, started off on the first drive with um, an interception uh, – or uh, not an interception. Um, first drive for – or let me just – let me just um, – I start off with uh, some context for this game. So Jared Goff uh, coming off a, a rough game um, the previous week uh, against the Bears again, like despite the fact that they came all the way back, um, I didn't think that Goff played very well in that game. And um, that kind of continued into this week um, with Jared Goff in this Thanksgiving game. Um, Goff against the Packers, it wasn't supposed to be um, a super tough matchup, but Goff's very poor play, um, specifically two fumbles that I'll talk about, um, kind of doomed the, the Lions from the start and wasn't able to put it together a uh, comeback attempt uh, like he did against uh, the Bears. So started off with, on the first drive, um, started off good for, for the Lions. Um, the, the Lions got off with um, a short pass to Jameson Williams for a 13-yard gain, um, and then... He hits Sam Laporta on a deep pass for a 31-yard gain. Uh, good pass from Goff here. Uh, and then uh, Sam Laporta for a seven-yard touchdown. Um, the next drive, though, is where things start to go south. So um, Goff starts to scramble uh, up the middle for a three-yard gain. Um, and then the next play is a fumble by Goff for a 27-yard touchdown for the Packers. Um, so that's his first turnover-worthy play of the day. Um, the next, next drive, again, um, Goff, after an incompletion to Gibbs, um, tries to scramble on third and five and has another fumble. So back-to-back drives with the turnover worthy play. Um, the next drive for Goff, uh, this one stalls out with a punt, um, has a couple of short passes to Rodriguez and Alvin Ross St. Brown um, before he can't hit Sam Laporta for uh, a third down conversion and they end up punting. Um, the next drive, um, this one is a turnover on downs. This one, uh, Goff starts off with a sack that I thought was on him and then has a throwaway. Um, and then after a penalty gives the Lions first down, uh, Goff hits Khalif Raymond for a 20-yard gain, which was a very well-designed play. Um, the next play is a sack, or rather intentional grounding, which I count as a sack um, on Goff. Um, and then he comes back with uh, a short pass to Brock Wright for a 9-yard gain, and then hits Amon Ross St. Brown for an 8-yard gain. Um, and then on fourth down, they end up going for it, which I thought was a good decision. Uh, Goff can't hook up with Josh Reynolds, and that ends the drive there. Uh, on the next drive, the, the Lions stall out again because Goff can't hit. Uh, Sam Laporta misses a pass to Amon Ross St. Brown in kind of a tough window, but could have possibly hit that. Um, and then he can't hit Jamison Williams on uh, a downfield shot. 
Um, the second half, it starts to seem to get better, in, or it seems to start to get better in the first couple of drives. Um, starts off with a touchdown drive where Goff finally hits Amon Ross A. Brown on an impressive pass down the field, um, and then hits Josh Reynolds for a three-yard gain, um, and then David Montgomery finishes off on the ground. Um, the next drive, the Lions kind of start to get the ball moving a little bit. Um, Goff hits Amon Ross A. Brown for an eight-yard gain and a first down. Um, and then hits Amon Ross St. Brown again for a six-yard gain. Um, and then on third and four, he can't hook up with Amon Ross St. Brown uh, on a pass that he could have possibly hooked up, but um, just a little bit off. And then a fake punt gives uh, the Packers the ball deep in Lions territory. The next drive, uh, Goff with another fumble. Um, on this one, uh, this drive starts off uh, for Goff with a short pass to Khalif Raymond for a 15-yard gain, and then another one to Raymond for an eight-yard gain. Um, he then has a pass for uh, a short pass to uh, Sam Laporta for a negative two-yard loss, and then hits Jameer Gibbs on a third down where they were clearly setting up to go for it on fourth down. Uh, so Gibbs picks up five yards, and on fourth and seven, Goff doesn't even get a pass off because he fumbles the ball um, in Green Bay territory. So that's his third turn of worthy play of the day. Um, and yeah, that's the end of another Lions drive. Uh, the next drive, uh, Goff has a scramble for a four-yard gain. And then Goff hits Jameson Williams for a 38-yard gain, the most explosive pass of the day for the Lions. Um, he then hits Khalif Raymond for a 24-yard gain um, and then hits Amundra St. Brown for a short pass. Uh, but then on fourth and seven, uh, deep in Green Bay territory, again, he can't hook up with San Laporta, and that's another turner of word downs. Um, final drive of the game for the Lions, uh, Goff hits Amundra St. Brown on a short pass for a 15-yard gain and then San Laporta for a six-yard gain. And then he hits Gibbs for a three-yard gain and then a seven-yard gain. Um, and then continues to chunk his way down the field on short passes until he hits Amon Ross St. Brown, who takes it for a 23-yard gain. Um, and then Khalif Raymond, who takes it for another 23-yard gain. Um, and then for his touchdown pass, he finds uh, Josh Reynolds, who takes it for a touchdown. Um, and then they uh, connect on a two-point conversion attempt to uh, Sam Laporta. So, yeah, um, the final drive really helping Goff in terms of the stats um, and kind of his grade, too, because he did – play pretty well on that final drive. But um, Goff, the damage that he did, it was very much enough in all the drives leading up to the final drive. Um, many turnover he plays with the fumbles being pretty egregious. Um, and the way he handled pressure in this game was really poor. The Packers generated a ton of pressure, um, lined offensive line, having quite a tough time blocking up front. Um, and Goff did not deal with that well. As we've seen in the past, that's kind of an issue for him. Um, turnover he plays very high when the pressure starts to ramp up in, um, this was more evidence of that for Goff. Yeah, I love that you brought up Goff with this because I feel like a lot of people who may not even look at the fumble stats and just look blindly at his like passing stats, they would think this has been another good game for Goff in a pretty good season for him as we've talked about throughout the year. And I feel like this game could have just gone under the radar for him, but absolutely he was a big reason why <clears throat> this team lost and those three fumbles were a huge part of it. And even in the second half when the Lions offense did kind of get it together, you saw in that second half that this Lions team was very, very clearly the better uh, football team. They were, they were a better team than the Packers even on that day. And that really, really bad start kind of screwed them over. And at that point, there was no coming back from it. But a big reason they were in that position was because of all the mistakes Goff was making, a lot of stuff that absolutely swung the game for them. And 
uh, definitely worth mentioning here. And moving on from one quarterback who put up an absolute stinker uh, on Thanksgiving Day to another one, and probably my favorite bat of the week as a Niners fan, and that is Geno Smith, because man, did he look bad in this one. And it comes up even in the stats. He was 18 for 27 for only 180 yards, one pick, six sacks, and he was under pressure all day. Very, very weak game from him. And I think what really epitomized this game for him was one of the sacks where he simply on his drop back falls over. Nothing, no one was near him. He just falls over. And yeah, that kind of highlights how this game went for him. Uh, Very much did not look like Geno Smith. It seemed like the Niners pass rush had absolutely rattled him. Uh, One of the bigger plays of the game. And I feel like this was as a fan watching this game on this drive, it felt like the only point in this game where the uh, Seahawks had a chance. It had become 24-10. The Seahawks are driving. Geno Smith had finally hit a couple of good passes to Smith and Jigba as well as Metcalf. And things were looking good. They were in the red zone and had the opportunity to bring this down to a one-score game with a touchdown. And you see on first and second, first down, they have unsuccessful run. Second down, he throws incomplete. And third down was the real play where I really felt like Geno Smith was just completely out of it in this game because you see uh, uh, DK Metcalf running like an in-breaking route, almost like a slant on the right side of the field. And obviously you're not going to get someone too open in this part of the field, but the Niners had pretty much sent a full out, out blitz at all the all the receivers were uh, in one-on-one coverage and DK Metcalf does have inside leverage here you could have fired it into him low and low and hard and he probably would have come down with it for a uh, for a touchdown but Geno Smith instead of making that throw and I think nine out of ten times with Geno Smith and his level of aggression you see him making that throw but he chooses to hold it wait for something else the pressure swarms him and he just simply goes down Uh, doesn't even try to necessarily keep his head up and look for something else. And to me, this kind of just showed Geno Smith's confidence had absolutely just been shot in this game. Uh, Ever since that interception he threw, which was a very bad interception, you see him try to go on an out route to Tyler Lockett, and he just doesn't put enough heat on it. Uh, It was kind of lobbed to the sideline, and when that happens, it's very easy for the DB to come undercut it and steal that interception, and that's exactly what – I forget who picked it off, but that's exactly what he did. Uh, And throughout the game, we saw that multiple plays where Geno Smith just kind of tucks the ball and takes the sack instead of looking for something. We see his uh, aggression go completely, went completely out the window. And we've seen since Geno Smith has come back last season that he's been a pretty aggressive quarterback. He likes to throw the ball downfield into tight windows and having uh, receivers like DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, it absolutely is in their best interest to do that. But the Niners completely took that away. Uh, in Geno Smith's defense a little bit, it did seem like uh, Charvarius Ward had completely gotten in DK's head. He had locked him out completely. The pressure was all over Geno Smith, and it did completely mess up the rhythm he had going on. The only receiver who I'd say had a good day for the Seahawks here was uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba. And I do think if Geno Smith played 
better on the day and was a little bit more accurate, you would have seen a, a lot more from JSN in this one. But in general, he was pretty inaccurate. A lot of missed passes. You saw batted uh, balls from DBs all over the place because pretty much every throw Geno Smith made was either slightly underthrown or a little bit off target. Uh, it's 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 like I said. It seemed like the pressure got to him, and he completely folded. All right, going from one NFC West quarterback to another, um, we kind of feel bad because we haven't even talked about him at any point uh, for his season so far, and that's Kyler Murray. But um, this game was bad from Kyler um, against the Rams, and it started out good. Um, Kyler hit a short pass to James Conner for an eight-yard gain. Um, and then a couple of passes to James Conner and then Marquise Brown. Um, this one to Marquise Brown in the intermediate or short area pass that he took for a 17-yard gain. Um, and then he hit Trey McBride and Greg George for 12 and 14-yard gains um, on solid passes. Um, Kyler then took it in for a two-yard or yeah, took it in for a two-yard touchdown um, and then converted. Or Clayton Toon came in and converted on a touch push um, on a, both both of those being rush attempts. Um, and yeah, that was kind of it for the Cardinals offense. First drive results in a touchdown and a two-point conversion, um, and then they do not score until the fourth quarter. So I'll get into that. Um, the next drive is uh, a punt drive for the Cardinals. Kyler can't hit Hollywood um, or Greg Dortch on back-to-back passes, um, and then throws a check down on third and 10, which results in a punt. Next drive, um, Kyler can't hit Marquise Brown on a deep pass, um, and then Kyler takes a sack on third and seven, which I didn't think was on him, but uh, results in a fourth down. Uh, next drive, another uh, pass that, or another drive that stalls out. Uh, Kyler hits Hollywood for a six-yard gain, um, and then on fourth and two, um, after they run and can't get it, um, Kyler just kind of throws into coverage uh, on fourth and two. Kind of, you have to throw something on fourth and two, but um, this one wasn't open to Trey McBride and it's easily broken up by the Rams. The next drive, another three and out. Um, Kyler throws a short one to Trey McBride um, and then can't hook up with Greg Dorch on back-to-back passes. Um, yeah, just tough drive there. Um, and then on the final drive on, of the second quarter, they're trying to get into field goal range. Um, but um, Kyler hits um, Rondell Moore, uh, and this should have been a completion, but Rondell Moore can't come up with the, uh, can't come up with the pass. Um, and then they run a couple run plays and get into field goal range, but uh, a penalty kind of stalls that out, and they can't get the field goal off. Um, the next drive, really rough, just really stalling out. Um, Kyler can't hook up with Greg George um, or Hollywood Brown, um, but they get a fake point off um, and get a ten-yard gain on that on that play. Um, but then Kyler can't hook up with um, Hollywood Brown on first and thirty-four because they had an offensive holding and then um, an illegal chop block, which puts them deep into their own territory um, after executing a fake punt. Um, and Kyler throws uh, a check down and then another short pass to, or another pass that shorts, short of the sticks to Rondell Moore. They can't pick up the first down. So a uh, really rough drive penalty-wise. Uh, the next drive, they can't score again. Uh, Kyler hits Trey McBride for a 16-yard gain um, and then uh, throws to Hollywood Brown for a 17-yard gain. Uh, and then has a turnover-worthy play on a dropped interception where he's pushing the ball uh, to Elijah Higgins, um, and then hits uh, Greg Dortch uh, for a 12-yard gain, um, and then uh, can't hook up with, or hooks up with Trey McBride for a nine-yard gain, and then can't hook up with uh, Hollywood Brown. Um, and they can't 
end up converting on that field goal attempt. Uh, next drive, um, another three and out. Uh, Kyler hits James Conner for a short short pass that ends up going for negative four yards. Can't hook up with Greg Dorch and then takes a big sack on third and 14 where this one I thought was on him. Um, but yeah, you have to throw something on third and 14. He ends up taking a sack. It's kind of uh, not the greatest play. Um, the next drive is kind of garbage time, but they do finally end up scoring on a touchdown drive. Um, Kyler hits Hollywood Brown on a deep pass for a 36-yard gain. Um, and then hits Michael Carter for a short pass. Um, and then Michael Carter again for a six-yard gain. Um, he then hits Trey McBride for a three-yard gain. Um, and then hits Greg Dorch for um, the six-yard touchdown. Can't convert on the two-point conversion. Uh, and then the final drive, they kind of try to put some more points on the board, but they can't end up doing it. Kyler throws a short pass to Trey McBride and then takes a sack that I thought was on him. Um, and then throws a couple of short passes to Michael Carter for one and seven yard gains. Um, and then um, on a first and 10, um, after the two minute warning, Kyler hits Greg Dorch for a seven yard gain and then Hollywood Brown for a short two yard gain. Um, and then throws one to Elijah Higgins for a 26 yard gain. Uh, then takes a sack in Rams territory that I thought was on him, but makes up for it with a 10 yard gain on a pass to Hollywood Brown. Um, and then after a couple of incompletions, or after an incompletion uh, to Hollywood Brown on fourth and seven on the last part of the game, he hits Rod Moore to pick up the first down, but uh, time expires on that one. So really, like, really a rough game to watch from the Cardinals offense. Uh, severe lack of explosive plays on a consistent basis. Um, not great pass blocking. Uh, Kyler, certainly not. Um, you, you have to blame some of it on Kyler with the sacks, but... Um, a totally inept showing from the Cardinals' offense overall. The receiving core is really poor, um, but Kyler missing on a ton of deep passes um, is part, part, partially to blame. His reaction to pressure is partially to blame. Um, and just kind of a, a general lack of the accuracy that he had before the injury. He's been missing a number of passes that he normally hits. So, yeah, very this, this game looks very rusty. If he played like this in the first game back, I would have been like, okay, that's normal rust, but... Um, kind of got to start to pick it up if we want to have confidence on in Kyler um, heading into next year. And this game didn't inspire confidence in me. Yeah, Kyler definitely does need to pick things up because this offseason is going to be huge for him and the Cardinals. Obviously, the Cardinals being 2-10 and 10 right now, they're in prime position to maybe decide to hit the reset button uh, head their uh, head in a new direction with this uh, new crop of quarterbacks in this draft class. There being a lot of them, and so far in his return, Kyler hasn't necessarily shown that there's uh, something there to build around, at least to the extent that we thought of him maybe two years ago at this point. And I think to put it bluntly, like you said, he does look rusty to me. This isn't the Kyler Murray that I expect to see moving forward because. One of his strongest skill sets absolutely was his uh, his deep ball and his accuracy on those. And it seems right now, even though, yeah, his receivers aren't necessarily getting open consistently downfield uh, like they should be, even when they are doing so, he's not hitting them. And I think, yeah, yeah the offensive line did play pretty poorly in this game, but I do think a lot of those sacks does kind of come with his style of play. We know he's the type of quarterback that isn't going to take hits, 
He's going to try to run out of the pocket and make something happen in those situations. And right now, to me at least, ever since he's come back in the injury, it feels like he hasn't leaned on his uh, ability to escape pressure and his explosiveness to the extent he used to before. And maybe it's because he's still coming back from injury or maybe he just doesn't want to play in that style anymore because obviously it was a non-contact injury. But when he did get his injury, it, it was him kind of playing in this in that way. And maybe he's trying to mold himself to be more of a pocket passer. But I do think with his frame and his skill set, that's not really the best place to be. Obviously, Kyler is an incredible pocket passer, and that's kind of how he plays uh, majority of the time. But I do believe his explosiveness and kind of be, being able to run around in general is what kind of separated him when he was playing at his best. So I would like to see more of that out of him. I, I want to see his accuracy kind of go back to the levels of what we expect as he plays more. And like you said, this would have been like more of an acceptable showing for his first game back. But ever since he's been back, we have seen much better games out of him. Uh, and this one seemed a little bit weird to me, especially against the Rams defense, which uh, so far this season hasn't necessarily been dominant. This has been... This was probably one of their more dominant showings in a while, and you definitely don't want to be the quarterback to make that happen. Uh, but moving on from one smaller quarterback to another uh, who put up a pretty bad performance in this uh, this week, and that's Bryce Young. And to me, it kind of this whole offensive performance was kind of summed up by the announcers at the start of this game. I believe he started out saying that if you're watching this game, you must really love football. And that's kind of what I was thinking this entire time watching this Carolina offense because, man, it was ridiculous how bad the situation is. Uh, it kind of left me feeling bad for Bryce Young because you kind of see it with the last play of the game. It was a fourth and six, and the Panthers' offense decide to run a screen on a fourth and six, a wide receiver screen that had no blocking <laughs> whatsoever and was, I, I believe, stopped behind even the line of scrimmage. And the camera pans to Bryce Young, and you just see him looking down dejected, almost like he knew that whole time that that play wasn't going to work. And I feel like that play kind of summed up this whole game. Even though Bryce Young necessarily didn't do, any, uh, didn't do anything extraordinary to make this a good offense, and I also thought his fumble was pretty bad. It showed a little bit of a lack of pocket awareness he just gets hit on the blind side as if he didn't expect it whatsoever. And uh, I'd ideally want him to do a little bit better of a job holding on to it, make it a little bit harder for the, the, the defense to get the ball there. But it just pops out immediately. And I, that play kind of shows overall what's going on with this offense. I mean, even in that play, you see almost every single offensive lineman lose their one-on-one -on -one uh, you see not a single receiver open when you look at it from the film angle. It, it's a little bit ridiculous. This offense is playing pretty bad when you have a guy like Emir Smith-Marset as your fourth leading receiver on a team and guys like Steven Sullivan, Ian Thomas actually getting catches on this team. It, it's not, not never going to be a good offense. And I think because of this, we've seen Bryce Young's kind of accuracy look a little bit worse than 
it should, what we expected out of him. Uh, his anticipation, we don't even know to what extent it's there right now because to me, I feel like the Panthers have taken away the keys for him to even be able to make passes like that. This offense has gotten uh, gotten simplified to the point where he's just throwing screens and check downs a lot, uh, not really taking many risks. And I, I'm not even putting the blame on Bryce Young necessarily for that. I feel like the play calling has gotten to a point where they're not giving him the keys to the offense. And I don't understand that whatsoever. When you have a number one overall pick, you probably want him to make mistakes. You probably want him to do what he can. And I get that they don't have their pick and it's not necessarily in their best interest to lose, but I mean, they're losing anyways, doing what they're doing currently. I Maybe it's the offensive coordinators here trying to, uh, protect him and maybe make him uh, run an offense that's a little less risky, leads to less mistakes. But I just I don't see the point of it whatsoever. And that was kind of the theme of this entire game. Just really bad offense. Everyone across the board losing their one-on-one individual matchups pretty much, whether it's the offensive line or the receivers. Didn't really get much help whatsoever from the run game. And it's just a shit situation. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know if any quarterback could make do with this situation, but right now it is exposing exposing a lot of what is flaws in Bryce Young's game because we didn't we did expect him to maybe not be the best in the pocket in terms of standing in there being tough because of his frame, and we're seeing that a lot more because of how bad the offensive line is and. Yeah, and we another uh, question mark was maybe the lack of creativity or playmaking in his game, and we're seeing that even more because he's forced to do that so consistently because this offense uh, plays are breaking down left and right all the time. So it's just an unfortunate situation, and uh, in that he's looking pretty bad. Yeah, this game, I think he came out with the mindset to try to create as much as possible, and mm-hmm. There were some moments where, like, the tight window passes that he was throwing, like the one on fourth down to Stephon Sullivan, like, incredible pass. Um, and that's the type of passes he's going to need to complete if he wants to be able to generate positive plays for this Panthers offense because they are so horrible. They are a bottom five receiving core in the league, bottom five offensive line in the league, bottom five scheme in the league. Um, that's really, being I, I, I think it might be. Um, it's 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 atrocious right now for the Panthers. Um, they're strong contender for the worst situation in the league, right down there with the likes of the Patriots and such. Like you, you can put any quarterback in that situation, and their stats are going to look way way worse from what their baseline is. So, um, yeah, it's it's tough to make a clear evaluation on Bryce Young. He's certainly not playing well consistently, but um, I, I just would like to see some more sample with reasonable sporting cast. Um, speaking of a guy with improved supporting cast, let's talk about Lamar Jackson um, and his game against the Chargers. I thought it went a little unnoticed, but Lamar, again, um, without uh, Mark Andrews, it's not looking uh, as good as it has earlier on in the season. Earlier on in the season, Lamar was just on fire, um, just putting up big games, um, even in games where he was statistically deficient, um, like the game against uh, the Steelers. It was just drops and such that were holding him back. Um, but this game against the Chargers, it was very, very, a very, very good performance by the Chargers defense. And consequently, Lamar can't have possibly played well. So uh, let's get into it. So the first drive, which results in a punt, uh, Lamar takes 
a carry for a seven-yard gain on second and five. Um, hits Odell for a short pass for a nine-yard gain, and then hits another short pass to Zay Flowers for a three-yard gain. Um, and then on third and seven, he can't hook up with Isaiah Likely on uh, for an attempt to get the first down. Um, the next drive, one of their better drives for a touchdown drive, um, Lamar hits Isaiah Likely for a short pass for an 18-yard gain. Great run after catch effort by him. He then hits uh, Odell for an 11-yard gain, um, and then has a couple of short passes to Eaton Mitchell and then Odell for 14-yard gains each. Um, after a run for a one-yard gain, he hits uh, Rashad Bateman on another short pass for a 12-yard gain to, to pick up the first down on uh, third and nine. Um, and then he hits Zay Flowers for the touchdown uh, on a three-yard touchdown pass. Um, and then next drive for uh, the Ravens. Uh, this one doesn't result in uh, a scoring drive because of a turnover on downs. Um, Lamar hits uh, Rashad Bateman on, or sorry, Lamar uh, goes for uh, a run for eight yards. Um, and then on second and 12, he hits Isaiah Likely for an 11 yard gain. Um, and then on his next couple of passes, another couple of short passes to Likely and Bateman for seven and nine yard gains. Um, and then a scramble for a seven yard gain. Um, and then um, on third and three, um, he tries to scramble and reach the ball out for um, the first down, but comes up short by a few inches and they run direct snap and aren't able to pick it up with Gus Edwards. So rough play there. Um, the next drive for the Ravens, it is a scoring drive, but only a field goal. Um, Lamar takes a sack on his first pass on this drive uh, for a five-yard loss. Um, and then the, the Ravens um, pick a field goal on uh, on a fourth and 15 after Lamar isn't able to hook up with anyone on uh, on that third and 15. Um, the next drive, the Ravens again aren't able to get any scoring off. Um, Lamar hits Isaiah Likely for a four-yard pass. Um, but then Lamar, um, on his turnover-worthy play of the game, um, he gets sacked and fumbles, um, sacked by Khalil Mack on third and six. Um, this would have taken away a scoring drive opportunity for the Ravens, so I thought... Um, that was a uh, kind of somewhat bad turnover they play, not the worst, but um, definitely a turnover they play. And then on fourth and fourteen, they throw a hail mary, and they aren't able to uh, pick it up. Um, that's that's the end of the first half for the Ravens. Um, the next uh, drive for the Ravens, uh, Lamar hits Zay Flowers on a short pass for an eighteen yard gain, um, and then hits or, and then is unable to connect with Justice Hill and um, Odell on deep pass, and they end up kicking a field goal. Uh, the next drive again stalls out. Um, Lamar runs for an eight-yard gain, um, then has an intentional ground or a sack slash intentional grounding um, on a first down, which results in second and 22. He's able to hit Nelson Aguilar on a good pass for a 21-yard gain, uh, but then unable to hook up with Zay Flowers on third and one. Um, they do pick up the fourth and one. Um, then Lamar incomplete pass, then unable to hook up with Zay Flowers, uh, or able to hook up with Zay Flowers, but for a five-yard loss. And then they're unable to hook up with Nelson Aguilar. Uh, they end up punting. Next drive, uh, three and out for the Ravens. Um, Lamar back-to-back incompletions to Zay Flowers. Uh, the next drive, they are able to advance the ball a little bit, but um, nothing in the name of super explosive plays for Lamar. It's a short one to Gus Edwards, um, and then a couple of short passes to Zay Flowers and Keaton Mitchell. And then he uh, scrambles for a one-yard gain. Um, and then they're not able to pick up the first down on third and three, end up missing field goal. Um, next drive for the Ravens, Lamar doesn't really do anything. A couple of 
runs for five and two yards and then throws a, or and then uh, hands it off to Zay Flowers. Zay Flowers takes it the distance for a touchdown. Um, and then that's the end of the game. So really, like I, like I mentioned with Kyler, um, a total lack of explosive plays from Lamar specifically. No, no throws that were like super impressive to make up for the turnover play that I mentioned with the fumble. Um, and so that kind of just leads to a bunch of short passes and a number of incompletions that I also mentioned. Um, yeah, it just kind of leads to an out of rhythm, out of character type of day for the offense. Um, credit to the, the Chargers defense, but the Ravens missing Mark Andrews is kind of really showing up. And uh, this was one of the more eye-opening games for me specifically in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I think one of the biggest things that I've been kind of uh, intrigued or kind of maybe more so worried with Lamar Jackson is he's always been prone to having games like this, especially when Mark Andrews is out, obviously. Uh, it, it, even though this is an improved supporting cast, it's obvious that this isn't one of the best receiving cores in the league. And sometimes when Lamar Jackson isn't having his best passing day, uh, he was he's so lethal because he's been able to just kind of lean on his rushing game. And for whatever reason, I felt like this season he hasn't had that uh, dominant rushing type of performance in general or hasn't been able to kind of pick up his lack of passing on a game-to-game basis by doing that. And I understand that might be like a conscious decision from the Ravens and Lamar after all the injuries he's been dealing with the past few years. Obviously, he hasn't been able to play in the playoffs the last two years because of it. And that's ruined the Ravens' seasons. But I think on a game-to-game basis, we are seeing kind of a dip in games like this where he definitely could have taken over, I feel like, rushing the ball. And he did rush quite a few times in this one, but none of them seemed to – it didn't really make a big impact, uh, at least to the extent that we've seen out of Lamar Jackson. Uh, And maybe it is a little bit of a decline in his athleticism in general, or maybe it's just him – choosing not to do it but it, uh, in general I think that's been one of the biggest things looking back at I'd say the last five six games we haven't seen him do that uh to much uh to the extent that we've expected out of Lamar Jackson so very very interesting and I do agree because the Ravens won this game and kind of were dominant throughout that it went under the radar almost this Lamar Jackson game uh but moving on to the other primetime game of the week the Monday night game Uh, and talking about a bad performance here in Justin Fields. And, man, this game really disappointed me from Justin Fields because starting this game, I I thought there was no chance this was going to end up being a bad game for him, especially in this first half. He came out looking pretty solid, I'd say. Uh, He was kind of dealing from the pocket a little bit. Obviously, he wasn't necessarily throwing the ball into tight windows or, like, uh, slicing the defense as we as we may see other quarterbacks do from the pocket. But he did look very comfortable in the pocket. We, see, we saw plenty of underneath passes or even intermediate range passes where he was finding an open guy. Uh, the Bears were consistently co- calling solid plays uh, at that point in the game uh, where the, it was maximizing field skill set. And I think the biggest thing that I liked out of fields in this game was his playmaking, actually. He was under duress, like, all game in this one we and we saw multiple plays where he was able to break out of sacks 
with the Vikings defenders literally grabbing him and still being able to break out of sacks, either throw the ball away, scramble for a couple of yards, uh, multiple plays where he even threw the ball off uh, breaking these tackles and made huge completions. One that stuck out to me a lot was acting the first quarter. We see him get completely flushed out of the pocket, like three Vikings def- uh, defensive linemen win their matchups. And he is able to kind of break out of that, run to the left sideline and throw back across his body over the middle of the field to a receiver to pick up a first down. And there was another play where uh, I forget who was uh, broke free and had Justin Fields in his arms. And he was able to kind of stiff arm his way out of the way, run over to the right sideline and throw it for a first to Khalil Herbert. And there were plenty of these that happened throughout the game. He looked good running the ball. He was somewhat accurate too. He was aggressive. Him and DJ Moore had a great connection in this game. That roughly 40-yard pass he threw to DJ Moore was amazing. And I, I think him and DJ Moore, it's looking more and more that like they're going to be a solid connection. But what ended up selling this game for him was that second half and – more specifically, those two fumbles, they were atrocious fumbles. Both him kind of running in the middle of the field and treating the ball like a loaf of bread or something, not really prioritizing holding it. And it just popped out of him in the middle of the field. Both tackles, which I didn't necessarily think would result in a fumble, but it just kind of goes to show how careless he was with the football. And even though they end up coming away with this game and winning, Uh, I'd credit that more to the fact that Josh Dobbs threw four interceptions and the fact that we saw the Dobbs stinker that he put up, which I'd say was inarguably worse than uh, Justin Fields in this game. They only were able to come away with the 12 to 10 victory because of the mistakes Justin Fields was making and passing the football. It's not like he was doing any, even though he was playing well for him, he still wasn't creating a lot of explosives. He still wasn't making throws that were necessarily something that I was overly impressed by. I was just impressed because it was him. And we've seen him earlier this season struggle with even the simple things. And it was nice to see him actually kind of break out of that to a certain extent, uh, be great under pressure and be able to kind of deal with the bad situation in this game. But those fumbles completely messed that up. And even the second half in general, I felt like there was drive after drive where his accuracy fell through a little bit multiple just missed throws that kind of ruined drives and was the reason this was even a game. I feel like the way the Vikings played, the Bears should have blown them out. Uh, Obviously, they're not a good team either, so maybe a blowout is asking for a lot. But at the same time, this Vikings team played terribly, and the only reason I felt like this game was close was because of those mistakes Fields made later in the game. Yeah, Fields, um, definitely an up-and-down day day. Through a billion screens, um, he had multiple turnover plays. Um, so I don't think he did enough to make up for it. Had a great deep pass late mm-hmm. in the game to DJ Moore, but I don't think that's enough to make up for all the turnover plays that he had. All right, so let's talk about um, what's going to happen in Week 13. Uh, preview the biggest games that uh, we're looking forward to, um, and I'll start off with the morning slate of games um, and look into Russell Wilson. So Russell Wilson's been playing a lot cleaner this year. Um, hard to not play clean when you throw 1,500 screens a game, but still, um, I've appreciated Russell Wilson's um, buy-in to the scheme, and um, he could have bailed early from the pocket and just been running around a lot of these plays, but 
um, staying disciplined and, and executing the scheme that Sean Payton is calling. So how do you think he fares against the Texas defense that's been up and down with both their pass rush and secondary being filled with young players? Um, which version of Russ do, we, do you think we get? Uh, I think uh, we see a very similar version of Russ to what you've been talking about. Because I think, obviously, the Broncos have completely turned around their season since that. I think it was a 1-4, and 1-5 start. And I think the biggest thing is the way they've changed their offense to uh, suit Russ's skill set to where he is right now. Which, at this point in his game, you simply can't let Russ cook, as uh, Broncos fans have been talking about since he's been there. And it does kind of need to be an offense with a lot of screens, a lot of runs up the middle, very simple stuff. And right now with the Broncos making a push for the playoffs, needing a big win against a Texans team that's really hot right now and playing really good defense uh, offensively, I think we're going to see a Russell Wilson that's playing in a very limited kind of offensive scheme. They're going to try to maximize uh, or minimize the number of mistakes uh, he'll make by putting him in a lot of situations where – uh, he isn't going to make mistakes. I still think it's going to be a very simple vanilla brand of football, kind of the way they've been playing throughout. And I do know this Texans defense has been a little bit up and down because, like you said, they have a lot of youth, uh, not necessarily, and uh, not necessarily the amount of talent you would want to have a dominant defense. And I think even then the Broncos offense are, is still kind of just going to have to deal with what they got which at this point, they don't really have any elite playmakers on that entire offense. But Sean Payton has somehow figured out a way to make it work. And uh, this defense has obviously picked it up massively, which has changed things for them. And that actually leads to my question, which is actually about the other side of this matchup with C.J. Stroud. Obviously, this Broncos offense since that historically, or Broncos defense sorry, uh, after that historically bad start, has massively picked things up since uh, Justin Simmons has been back. Uh, and they've put up good performances against elite quarterbacks like Josh Allen and Mahomes. How do you think they fare against C.J. Stroud this week? Yeah, so I think um, the way that the Broncos have been succeeding on defense recently is through the turnovers. Um, and that can tend to fluctuate pretty wildly from game to game. Turnovers are kind of induced by mistakes by the offense most of the time. Um and I think that this is kind of a game that ends up being very boomer bust um, for Denver. Um, if CJ Stroud is uh, under pressure and not making good decisions, um, we're, we're kind of getting to the point where that's less of a concern as the games go by, but it's still a possibility to me. Um, but yeah, in, in the more likely cases is, is that the Broncos get kind of carved. Um, I think that the Texans scheme res, um, ca causes the Broncos to have to communicate a ton which is still kind of an issue for the, the defense um and so yeah i think that the texans have an opportunity to put up a big big total um, in terms of offense in this game all right let's move on to the big game of the week niners eagles nfc championship rematch i know you're looking forward to this one yep and so am i um and i'll talk about it from the eagles perspective so uh jalen hurts eagles offense has been in a rut for a number of halves this year um, including the bills game they were extremely cold in that first half and before catching fire in the second half, and Jalen Hurts was definitely a part of that. Um, so how do you think the Niners complicate the look for Jalen Hurts, and what do you think are some possible solutions that the Eagles can have to the Niners' defense? 
Well, I think one of the biggest things that I've talked about with this Niners-Eagles matchup, because I think in the NFC, it's kind of been expected since the start of the two year that these two teams will be the heavyweights of the conference. And I think it's kind of played out that way. And I don't know how much I've mentioned it on the podcast, but uh, in general, as a Niners fan, I do feel like this Eagles uh, offense has exactly what it takes to beat uh, this Niners defense, which is the best way to beat this defense is beating them at their own game and winning in the trenches and having a good run game. And I think 100% the Eagles def- uh, offense uh, can do that versus uh, this Niners team. And I think the way the Niners are going to combat that is with kind of what we what they've developed recently with having a lot more defensive line depth. We've seen ever since that Chase Young and Randy Gregory trades, we see them rotate a lot, a lot more than like you would expect. And that keeps getting fresh bodies in uh, and allows the Niners kind of to have a strong front consistently. And I think they're going to need that to limit that uh, Eagles rushing offense, which has obviously been dominant, whether they're running with DeAndre Swift or Jalen Hurts itself. And in terms of the pass game, I think they're going to try to vary their pressures a lot. We've seen multiple games, uh, even though the Eagles have gotten away with most of these games with wins, a lot of the games we've seen Jalen Hurts struggle. It's when obviously he's made a lot of mistakes like throwing picks and whatnot. And the reason those have happened, in my opinion, has been in games where he's dealing with a lot more pressure. And I still feel like uh, that's the most undeveloped part of Jalen Hurts game right now it's how he deals with pressure and I think the way the Niners are going to get to him because obviously this is a great offensive line and they are able to protect him decently well is varying their pressures I think we we're going to get a lot of stunts a lot of things like uh Bosa pulling across trying to get through the middle of the field uh, middle of the offensive line maybe get an easier matchup than uh, a tackle matchup there, try to get closer. I think guys like Javon Hargrave and Eric Armstead are going to be huge uh, trying to combat Jalen Hurts because when you do get a lot of pressure up in Jalen Hurts' face through the middle, obviously with any quarterback, that's the hardest thing to deal with. But with Jalen Hurts specifically, it really limits uh, him being able to run out of the pocket, make things happen in that regard. It would force him to be more of a pocket passer. And I think we're going to learn a lot about where uh, Jalen Hurts is as a quarterback this in this game because I think they are going to force him to be more of a pocket-passing, wheel-and-deal kind of guy in this game. And that's really the only way I think you can stop this Eagles offense is trying to take the run away and those easy yards as much as possible and force Jalen Hurts into mistakes. And now, obviously, Hurts is an elite quarterback that might – burn you and you might end up getting a high level hurts game like we saw we've seen plenty of times uh especially like the super bowl but i think you kind of have to sell out on that because this eagles offense is so dominant and really there's not much of a other blueprint to be, uh, beat that and that is how the niners defense looked pretty good against the uh him actually in that last nfc championship game uh and we'll finally see what would have happened had Brock Purdy not hurt himself in that game. And that actually does move me on to the other side of the field in Brock Purdy uh, and the Niners. Obviously, we didn't get to see uh, them go against this Eagles defense last year, uh, but they have been on a tear recently. How do you think Brock Purdy and this Niners offense as a whole, guys like CMC, IU, Kittle, Devo, Fair against this Eagles defense? Yeah, so I have very high hopes for the Eagles or for the uh, Niners 
offense in this one. Um, just like the Niners, the Niners' offensive line, especially on the interior, in terms from from a pass blocking standpoint, has been extremely well hidden, in my opinion, by the Niners' scheme. And I think that the advantage for the Eagles in this game is that interior pass rush. Um, and even on, along the edges, I think they can have some success with Hassan Reddick if he lines up away from Trent Williams and such. Um, I just think that the the pressure is the only way that the Niners can be affected, and the the corners of the Eagles just kind of have no chance with Brandon Ayuk. Um, yeah. With all the weapons that the Niners have, um, I think it's going to be a struggle for their secondary. It just kind of depends on whether they, the Niners can continue this rhythm of being able to manage um, their offensive line play and kind of continue to mitigate their uh, personnel disadvantages against the likes of Jalen Carter and such. Um, and I think they very much can. Um, and I kind of expect some quick hitting plays where Purdy anticipates the passes really well and um, hits Ayuk on uh, in-breaking routes, um, deeper routes down the field. Um, yeah, really excited to see this one. I think it has explosive shootout potential if the Eagles can kind of live up to their potential. And um, yeah, then as you can tell from that, I have high hopes for the, for the Niners offense. Uh, all right, let's go to my final preview of the week, and that's going to be Jordan Love. So this is a really, really uh, important game for me for monitoring Jordan Love's progress. Um, remember the first start of Jordan Love's career where he was going up against the Chiefs in uh, in Arrowhead, and he looked atrocious. Um, and it would be a fun, fun check-back moment for him to see how he's played or how he's improved since that game. Uh, so how do you think he fares against a complicated defense from Steve Spagnuolo and uh, a ton of great players along that Chiefs defense? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting question. I actually forgot about Jordan Love's performance and kind of a stinker in that game. And I do think we're going to see completely different play from both sides of the field because obviously Jordan Love has massively improved. But also this Chiefs defense, in my opinion, has massively improved from what we saw back then. I think back then the Chiefs were absolutely more of a, and even maybe now with Patrick Mahomes obviously being as incredible as he is, a very offensive slanted team. But I think now their defense is huge. Uh, I am interested to see how Jordan Love deals with what I'd expect to be a little bit more pressure than that Lions game. I think I mentioned how the Packers offensive line played like a uncharacteristically good game in that one and I don't know if they'll be able to put up a similar performance against Chris Jones, Carl Aftis and this be a, a little bit uh, expecting a little bit more pressure. Uh I do think Jordan Love will struggle a little bit more with that uh than he did in the Lions game and the other thing I I am interested to see how good the uh Packers receivers play again cuz they've put up a really good game in that one. But obviously this season we've seen throughout guys like Christian Watson haven't been playing too well. Dobbs has been solid, but in my opinion, not number one option still. And they played really well against the Lions. And this uh, Chiefs secondary has been pretty decent. I think they do match up solidly well. I think the smaller kind of like get up in your face corners have given uh, Christian Watson a lot of struggles. And I think Trent McDuffie can absolutely do that to uh, Watson once again. So I don't expect a, a very massive offensive showing, kind of like we saw last week from Jordan Love. However, I do expect a much better performance than obviously that first uh, Chiefs matchup. 
Uh, I don't think there's going to be as many explosives as last game. I think he's going to play a lot more limited uh, uh, in the scheme. Uh, This Chiefs offense is probably going to put up a lot of points as they do or you would expect the Chiefs offense to do. And I do think the Packers will eventually let Jordan Love loose a little bit uh, in order to keep up with that once the Chiefs offense really gets it going and maybe is scoring every drive or something. But I do think it starts off a little bit slow and kind of depending on the game script will show or will depend on how Jordan Love ends up playing the rest of the game. But definitely don't expect anything as good as we saw in the previous week. Uh, And moving on to the other primetime matchup, and I guess the last one of the day, we've seen our last game of the week on Monday Night Football. uh, We've seen Trevor Lawrence go on an absolute heater these past couple of weeks. Uh, and now he's playing up against the Bengals defense who didn't really put up the best showing as we talked about against that Steelers uh, offense. How do you think how do you think Trevor Lawrence plays against this Bengals defense? Do you think they he continues to go on this tear and exposes them or do you think the Bengals defense puts up a better game plan? Yeah, so there's a ton of potential here for Trevor Lawrence to go off. Um, the Bengals defense is bad at limiting explosive plays because of a lack of discipline in the back end for safeties and the corners playing deep. So it's it's not a good combination. Um, leads to a ton of plays for the Bengals where they're just absolutely burnt. Um, yeah, I, I think that the, the Jags could put up a really big total here. Um, the, the Bengals defense just not been impressive this year in terms of communicating, in terms of sticking with receivers down the field, just not, not great stuff. So yeah, I, I have high expectations for the Jags in this game. All right, that'll be all from us for this one. Make sure to like, leave a rating, do whatever you need to do on the platform that you're listening on. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at the 34 underscore and Real Ruffle Potty too. That'll be all from me. That'll be all from Potty. We'll see you guys in the next one. Peace. Peace. Yeah, we could be superstars, but I'm-